This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. Um, so let's see here. So you already know me, sir. I want to give the opportunity uh, for you to introduce yourself uh, also to my team members, if you don't mind, and then my team to introduce to you. So if that's okay with you, yes. we'll get started. Yes. Um, my name is John Moon. Um, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm a retired uh, assistant chief for the city of Pittsburgh Emergency Medical Services after 34 years. Uh, and a former uh, Freedom House paramedic uh, from 1972 to 1975, uh, when the service itself uh, was consumed by Pittsburgh EMS. Ken? Sure. My name is Ken Sanner, uh, and we are recording. Yep, yep. So I am a captain in a major metropolitan fire department uh, here in the area. I've been in EMS for almost 20 years, and I am a big fan of yours so it's an honor to meet you <laughs> thank you and uh, i'm josh cook uh, i'm a firefighter paramedic in the dc metro area for a large department uh definitely a big fan of you a uh, big fan of your uh, former organization freedom house and what it did for our profession and for medicine in general and absolutely love the book that kevin hazard wrote along with you uh, about that story and that uh, that journey to where we are today yeah thank you thank you so much so I got to ask first, sir. Um, so Ken was actually my paramedic instructor and we, I did not know Freedom House existed until uh, Josh actually was like, have you read this book? And I'm like, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then like on LinkedIn and on social media, I saw a bunch of people posting and I was like, you know what? Let me get this book. Let, let, let's see what it's about. Not expecting, uh, I, my mind was blown. So uh, my first question to you, sir, is how do you think that happened? I know we talked about it a little bit when during our phone call, but why is it that Freedom House isn't like the, uh, you know, why, why do you, why every student should know who Freedom House is, you know, what Freedom House was, who was there. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, to a certain extent, um, I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed that uh, very few people know uh, about Freedom House. Uh, on one end, and on the other end, I, I understand as to why uh, they don't know. Uh, the unfortunate part about it is uh, once uh, the department it's, uh, itself was consumed by Pittsburgh Emergency Medical Services, um, it was a concerted effort uh, to remove any remembrance of Freedom House. And uh, you do that by simply removing the history makers, which were the individuals that worked at Freedom House. And if you do that, you also eliminate the history that those individuals made. Uh, unfortunately, uh, during my time there at the very beginning, 
1975, it was a concerted effort to do that. Uh, whereas almost 80% of the employees that came over from Freedom House uh, were uh, systematically uh, eliminated. And um, we more or less had to uh, be indoctrinated into a system where we really, to a certain extent, if we really want to be honest with ourselves, uh, wasn't welcomed. Um, we were actually placed in a, a environment in which I would call survival of the fittest. Um, and it was exclusively designed to be that way. Uh, all of the experience that I had had with the renowned uh, anesthesiologist and uh, one of the greatest medical directors that I have ever encountered, uh, I take all of that experience and all of the knowledge that uh, they had taught me and go into a new system where none of that is accepted. Uh, I was sort of like a third person on a two-person crew. Uh, I couldn't drive the vehicle. I couldn't talk on radio. I couldn't examine patients. Um, and that was all part of a, a, a predestined design to kind of put me in a position of frustration uh, to the point where I would say, okay, I don't need to deal with this anymore. Uh, you all have this, I'm out of here. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I really wanted to be known that you, you guys are not talking to a disgruntled uh, Pittsburgh paramedic. Uh, I love the department still today. I love the people that work there. And uh, Pittsburgh EMS will always have a large part of my heart. Uh, but we're talking about different times and, and, and different uh, regimes, if you would have it. So uh, I can understand why people uh, don't know. And, and, and since I retired, I've kind of gone on this personal mission to kind of reinvent this part of history that was uh, dormant uh, for so long. So I have to thank you all uh, for this opportunity because whether you believe it or not, you're actually helping me fulfill the desires of my heart. And, and that's to make sure that this part of history is, is not forgotten. And, and we really appreciate your time, sir, for, you know, going on that mission. Um, the, the fact of the matter is you all are the, the trailblazers that allow us to do what we do. Right. And not only that, you have a small part in each and every positive outcome that occurs in the pre-hospital setting. Because you all, and we'll get into this, the national model that you and Dr. Caroline and everyone, you know, you all uh, were tasked to write. Um, but before that, I, I, I just, and I want to make sure I open it up to my other folks, but I want to give for folks that may not know yet or may not have heard of this book yet. The book is called American Sirens, and it's by Kevin Hazard. That's correct, right? The name. Yeah, Kevin yes. Hazard, yeah. And uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a quick synopsis of what Freedom House was, how it became, and, you know, why it's such a, a, a big deal. And while you do that, I'm going to ask Josh to connect my laptop to power. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, what oftentimes people don't know, uh, because we've concentrated so much on the EMS component, uh, Freedom House itself was a nonprofit uh, organization uh, located in the Hill District, uh, primarily uh, designed to offer, uh, it was a nonprofit, 
uh, job training, uh, employment opportunities. Um, there was also a mini food bank uh, in this uh, facility. Voter registration was also a component of it. So it was more or less a community organization that uh, was committed to changing the shortcomings uh, of, of a neglected, underserved uh, community, which was uh, actually the Hill District. And as I, I reflect back on that, um, it, it's, it's amazing that this organization itself had the wherewithal to really hone in on trying to help an underserved community with a variety of different needs. We had individuals that uh, in the community themselves uh, couldn't make it to doctor's appointments. Um, and we unfortunately had to rely solely on the police to get back and forth to the emergency room or to get to the emergency room. And, you know, the, the community as a whole did not have a very good relationship uh, with a uh, predominantly white male police force. And if you look at that concept and add it all together, uh, it, it, it's a recipe for disaster, uh, to say the least. Freedom House itself uh, came up with the idea uh, from a great friend of mine who just turned 93 a couple of days ago, uh, Phil Hallen, who said, if this organization can deliver food or fruits and vegetables to the residents of this community, why can't they deliver medical care? And um, he came up with this vision of his to the point where he was able to convince the board of directors of, of Freedom House that this is a viable option here. And, and But what happened is they didn't know how to put it together. So the board of directors met with the uh, then chief officer of Presbyterian Hospital, um, Ed Norian, who in turn introduced this organization to another visionary uh, by the name of Dr. Peter Safford. Uh, he essentially invented CPR. It was his concept that you can save a person's life by providing care for them before they got to the emergency room. But it was very difficult for him to get that concept out into the world or out to the general public. So here comes this organization and they were paired together. And, and uh, Dr. Saffer was looking for a way to get his vision, his concept out into the general public. Freedom House was looking for a way to train individuals to provide a service to an underserved, neglected uh, community. So the two of them essentially formed this bond. And uh, for, Dr. Saffer said, okay, I will be more than happy to teach these individuals to do this. And Freedom House said, that's great, but there's one requirement that we will not back down from. And that requirement is that every member in this training class had to be black. And he uh, agreed to those. So you take 25 individuals and place them into a training class to train them to be the most sophisticated now pre-hospital care workers that had ever existed. Um, and it was amazing at some of the things that uh, we were doing uh, back during that time from 67 to 1975 that people take for granted 
uh, today. And we'll get into that, you know, a little later. But it, it's amazing where uh, Dr. Saffer was able to uh, break down different barriers to get us into uh, different areas, uh, training in the intensive care units, in the operating room, in the emergency room, uh, obstetrics, uh, as well as the morgue to uh, study uh, anatomy and physiology. Uh, in, in addition to teaching CPR and EKG recognitions and, and things like that. So we essentially took the emergency room and the intensive care unit from the hospital out into the street. And as a matter of fact, Freedom House's ambulances, when they first started, had the, the initials MICU on the side of them. So we were essentially mobile intensive care units. And everything that that we were able to do uh, was primarily reserved by physicians or residents or anesthesiologists or anesthetists in a hospital. But we took that concept from that environment out into the street in an effort to improve the lives of individuals. That, that uh, even hearing it after reading the book, we've already had an hour long you know, phone conversation. Then you hearing it again from you, it uh it's still just as mind blowing uh that you know uh, it, a a group that otherwise was so underserved uh you know put because they cared so much about their community put themselves through this training and having these visionaries you know not only the leader of the uh of freedom house that you mentioned but dr Saffer as well and then folks like you that really put in the work to improve the outcomes of your community uh it, that's remarkable uh, I want to open up to you guys. I, I don't want to, you know, uh, no, it's, it, it's, it's great to talk to you about this, you know, having read it in the book and having had some knowledge that this happened. And that's like saying knowledge. I had, it was, I think um, a post somewhere that said something about the book and then a little bit of a blurb about the book and about the history and not knowing prior to that and then learning all these things and how it evolved in freedom house and how it involved into the evolved into the curriculum that we, you know, now base what we do off of, you know, and that these things were going on in a, um, astoundingly underserved population, like Moose said, and in a silently underserved area, um, that these life-saving interventions were happening. And then we didn't even know about it for many years until, uh, people started paying attention more. And luckily Kevin Hazard took on this, um, this, I guess, a uh, torch to bring this information to us. And uh, it, like you said, it's great to hear from your mouth, hearing it and knowing, having read it and the story behind it. It's just, it's, it's still mind blowing. Um, you know, I just, I enlightened my dad to it, who is a former paramedic. He, I think knew a little bit, but didn't know a whole lot. But when I mentioned your name and what it was about, he looked at it and was like, oh my God, this is where it all came from. You know, and, and someone that was one of the first paramedics in the department that he worked for, and how, you know, where Freedom House started it and then it built from there is just amazing. I think it's really just such an amazing testament to you and the, the individuals you served with and people like Dr. Saffer, <clears throat> just the, the sheer force of will that you guys and, you know, men and women had to have had to take this initiative and make it happen against such opposition and difficulty. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing to me, just the sheer force of human will that you guys must have demonstrated, you, you know, at that time and continue to do so. 
and, and that's an interesting point because um, if you, and it's talked about in the book, if you try to look at the individuals, myself included, uh, that came through Freedom House, uh, we were uh, considered uh, the least likely to succeed. Uh, hardcore unemployables, which simply says nobody would hire you for any reason. Uh, society's throwaways, uh, if you have it. Um, but as I look back over my career in EMS and my time at Freedom House, I, I, I can't help but think that society made one mistake, is it didn't tell us that. So mm -hmm. we, in turn, went about designing a system and performing a service to a underserved, neglected community that's emulated across the country uh, today. And we, we're, we're talking about roughly something that occurred 50 years ago, and it still boggles my mind today, believe it or not, how far ahead of our time we were. And, and, yeah. I, and I just, you know, still have trouble wrapping my head around the idea that the things that EMS look toward as new inventions and and new techniques and new procedures and things like that, um, we were able to to accomplish that many many years ago when when it was totally reserved uh, for in hospital personnel. So I, I'm. It may sound strange or whatever, but I'm I'm still in awe of of how far ahead of our time that we were during that time frame, and and it, it's it, things that you all take for granted now. Uh, yeah, and it it's almost like looking at what you guys were doing uh, in Freedom House it was almost like kind of in a way like the Roman Empire when it came to how they advanced medicine and, and engineering and architecture and all these things. And then it was lost in the dark ages and how we almost had to rebuild to the point we were. And the things that you guys were doing were very comparable to the things we're doing now in the two thousands. And where would we now, if we didn't discard that experience and that understanding that um, knowledge that was gained from, Freedom House and from the paramedics that worked in Freedom House, where we would be today. Um, and it's just, it's, it's all, it's all, it's um, kind of still awestruck thinking about it. And it, just like you think right now as, as someone who did it and was there and now 50 years later, still thinking, wow, the things we did. I got to say one thing, and this is going to be controversial. Okay. I know this is going to be controversial, but what are some, the, what I see as unique aspects of Freedom House were a couple of things. Number one, you have the dedicated folks from the community, right? That want to care for that community. Number two, you have dedicated and uh, uh, medical direction that it, that is invested and is there is present. And quite frankly, and this is going to be the controversial part. It was a true independent service that did not answer to anyone except the citizens and the infrastructure of Freedom House. Right. And I know what I'm implying here. And I'm not saying that Firebase EMS is not as good or anything because that's what people <laughs> are going to immediately message, message us with. But uh, you got to call a spade a spade. You had these core components that allow for a close interaction of a medical director to a, the group of paramedics 
and you have those group of paramedics coming from the community they're serving. And I think there's a lot to be said to that. I would love to get your thoughts on that. Well, um, that's, that's an interesting concept because um, if you look at EMS today with the shortage of uh, EMTs or paramedics um, and also the lack of diversity in, in EMS as a whole, um, I believe that the EMS community, for lack of a better term, and you're right, I, I understand controversy, has somewhat recreated its own problem. And, and I mean that because the, and, and I'm not talking about every service, but um, if you don't invest in the community in which you serve, you run into problems like, like you're having today. Uh, the problems with uh, personnel shortages, uh, the problem with the lack of diversity uh, in, in EMS, uh, because I, I, I look at the model that Freedom House used, and when I worked for Pittsburgh EMS back in 1990, I used that same format to recruit for Pittsburgh EMS because the department went 10 years without hiring an African-American. So I voiced my concerns to uh, my leadership uh, and was able to uh, design the first diversity recruitment program in the city itself. And, and, and I used Freedom House's format where I went out into the community to community centers and, and job fairs and things like that and recruited individuals that had absolutely no concept, no idea what a paramedic was. And I was able to, to get the department to uh, allow these individuals to do their internships on Pittsburgh EMS's trucks. Uh, we paid them a, a stipend uh, while they were going through the training at EMT. And once you got to the paramedic training, you got a bump up in that stipend. And once you were done, I was able to keep the department or have the department hold job vacancies for these individuals because we had invested all this money into these individuals and it would have been a shame for them to go off and work for someone else. So it was just a lateral move into Pittsburgh EMS because they did all of their training on those vehicles. They were familiar with the personnel and they knew how the system actually worked. And that was very successful so much that that became the normal hiring process for Pittsburgh EMS. And it, it every class from that point on hammered out diversity. Uh, whether it was at the EMT level, whether it was at the paramedic level, that was a balance uh, around that line. And, and we were trying to get um, the diversity level up to roughly about 25%, which was what the department itself served in the uh, black community at, at that particular time. Uh, we probably got it up to around 18 or 19%, but it was still a big jump uh, during that process. So I, I, I truly believe that the, the EMS systems around the country probably have to invest in the communities in which they serve. You, 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 it's easy to put a hiring uh, 
notification on Facebook or TikTok or LinkedIn or what have you. Uh, but if I'm not familiar with those types of websites, then I don't see it. So you also have to take uh, an opportunity to go out and speak to sell this concept, sell this idea to the community. And, and, and once you invest in that community, the community becomes your allies. And, and it, it, it's, it's a very powerful thing to have as the firefighters could know if you wanted to close a fire station, the community would be up, up in arms about that. Oh, so yeah. you, 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 you have to use that same type of format uh, to strengthen your EMS systems. Because once you make the community your allies, you know, it, it's like a, a marriage made in heaven. Mr. Moon, why do you think we don't see as much EMS going into high school career days or college job fairs or community events trying to recruit from these kind of places? I, I think we've kind of lost the overall focus or the intent on what a paramedic is as to what the job entails. Uh, we want to create this superhuman being. Uh, it, 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 I, I want to make sure in some instances, not all, that you have a, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or, or what have you. But for what you do, it doesn't necessarily require that in my opinion. Uh, so we spent all this time trying to create this super, superhuman being that, that knowledge that you, you would only use roughly about 10% of it because the majority of the work that paramedics do, and it could have changed since my been there, the majority of the work is common sense. And uh, it's difficult to teach that. And I don't know of a college or a university around that could teach that nowadays. Uh, and also, if you're going into high schools, I think you have to uh, make that an emphasis. Uh, we tried that here in Pittsburgh where we created what we call the public safety magnet program. But we included police, fire, and EMS all into uh, one package. And it, it, it wasn't very successful at all uh, because all you were doing was exposing the individuals to those different uh, career paths. So they really didn't get a firsthand knowledge on what it would, would be like to be there. I, I think an internship uh, would be the way to go uh, now and and to expose the individual, I keep saying community members, to what it's like to be on a paramedic unit, to spend time on the paramedic, to, to go on some calls and see what the actual career path does. And then you can make a decision as to whether you want to go that route or, or, or not. Uh, I think we're somewhere shooting ourselves in the foot by elevating the requirements of, of the person and to the point now where uh, we can blame it on salaries and, and what have you. But um, And that may be part of it, but I think the main crux of the problem is that we are trying to create this superhuman being that is not required. Um, for the job, not saying I'm trying to not minimize what they do and things like that, but common sense plays a major role 
in some of the things that that you do. And I think we've kind of backed away from that. Okay. So you, you actually brought up twice now the phrase common sense, and this brings up something I would love to get your opinion on. One of the things we talk about when we, we teach EMTs and paramedics is critical thinking, right? Um, and common sense goes a long way towards having solid critical thinking skills, but it's so hard to teach good critical thinking skills. In your leadership experience, how do you approach that? And I know we're a little off topic from the history stuff, but it, it came up twice and I really want to hit this. Well, um, one of the ways that um, I believe you were able to, to kind of hone in on that is by putting yourself in that position. And one of the rules of thumbs that I use, uh, and I just talked to someone a couple of days ago about this, um, and they wanted to know what words of wisdom would I give uh, to a paramedic coming out of school and things like that. If you treat that patient as if it was a member of your family, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to treat them the right way because you see them as something precious. You see them as a loved one, or you can put yourself in that position. If it was me lying there, how would I want someone to interact with me or to treat me? So once you, to me, that's a common sense approach. I wouldn't want anyone to mistreat my loved one or my family member or myself. So why would I in turn reverse that role and treat someone else disrespectful or for lack of a treatment? So I, I, I really think that if you, that's the, to me, that's the common sense approach. How would I treat a member of my family if they were in that particular situation? I got I to gotta push back on that a little bit. I think that's good foundationally, but what do you do with, the, with folks for, for whatever reason, whether it's burnout, whether it's biases, whether it's any number of reasons? Because, you know, of course, if you're on a level playing field, it's easier to see someone as a member of your family. But when there's an infinite amount of... Uh, like I said, societal biases, personal biases, everything. How do you how do you fix that in the folks that are your that are working for you, or how do you promote their understanding and uh, and learning so that they can get to the point where they see their community members um, as a members of their family? Well, that's 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 interesting. All you have to do, basically, to me, is is to think back to the Freedom House employees. Um, there was a certain level of perseverance. There was a certain level of resiliency. There was a certain level of determination. You're talking about a group of individuals that weathered setbacks and disappointments and, uh, and broken promises and were able to create a system that uh, you see today. Um, so from my standpoint, it, it, it has to do a lot with the inner strength of the person. I mean, you know, I, I you know, I, I spent time out in the field. I wasn't always in administration. Uh, and even when I was in administration, I made sure when that part of me uh, was stressed out, I went out into the street and took care of a patient. And, and once I did that, I was fine because if I look at what I was dealing with at the office and then had to deal with this person who was 10 times worse off, then it was easy for me to forget about the stress, the stressful things that I had to deal with. So 
I think some of the things that oftentimes we don't see is the leadership projecting themselves out in in into the the workforce. Um, oftentimes, and and this is something when I worked, I tried to eliminate. Whenever you see a member from the administration coming on a call, you think that's something wrong, or you think they're coming out to discipline you, or something like that. But I wanted to dispel that myth by trying to get there first and treating the patient. And at least you would see that it's not all about coming out reprimanding you or complaining about something you did or didn't do and things like that. So it, it, it definitely does require a certain amount of inner strength. Now, how do you find that out? It, it's, it's, it's very difficult um, to do nowadays. Uh, because I, 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 I think you're, you're dealing with a completely different subset of individuals. They're not, I'm not saying that they're less, but the mindset is different. So, um, I think, you know, at Freedom House, we had to deal with some of the same situations that paramedics deal with today. And because of our determination and resiliency and perseverance, we were able to overcome the biases and prejudices and, and things that, that you, you, you talk about. So I, I, I oftentimes look at us when I'm thinking about our employees and each and every one of us had a shortcoming in our life. You know, it, it, we, we, we're no different than the average person. Um, but we didn't sit around and, and have pity parties for ourselves and, and, and complain that I never had this opportunity to do this or my father wasn't here for me to do that. And, and I, so I looked at that and I said, that is to me is the model of a group of individuals that can accomplish anything. And, and believe it or not, while we were there, it wasn't like we were trying to set this standard or set that standard to create this or create that. We were more concerned about providing a, a service to an underserved, neglected community that everything else just fell into place. No, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Josh, you have some? Uh, Ken? So I want to go back to the bachelor th degree thing, uh, because that you, you bring up a very interesting point. So I'll be completely honest with you. Like from our perspective, like we, uh, I, I always say that the ship for bachelor degree paramedics has sailed. Right. And I really want to bring up one point that you, you, you gave me an idea that, uh, I hadn't thought of in advancing the, 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 the role of the pre-hospital technician and advancing the practice of, uh, you know, paramedics, especially, it's important to not remember the folks that have uh, no education in the beginning. And that's a great point. And we, we talked about this a little bit during our phone call um, about how, like I said, the, the, to me, the, the requiring a bachelor's degree for an entry-level paramedic is now, uh, you know, the ship has sailed and I don't think that's even the right thing to do. So we're asking our folks to do a lot uh, and we keep building up the practice without requ increasing educational requirements. I wonder if there's an opportunity 
uh, and I, I know these guys right here know exactly what I'm going to say next. If there's an opportunity for a, a next, you know, advanced levels of EMS. So having a small group of people that do have graduate degrees, right? And because I know that there, I always say there's no shortage of suffering in our communities, right? Uh, the, we, there is plenty of room for EMS to grow. But I don't think we should increase the entry level requirements because I think it will be a detriment not only to our community members, but also to the folks that are trying to get into the door. Because I think the fire service and EMS is a unique place where you have to don't have to have anything. And we will come to you and or you can come to us and we will train you for free in many places. And in the world of college degrees, I'm in grad school right now and the thousands mm -hmm. of dollars I'm paying, I don't even want to think about Many folks don't have those resources um, or they have to go into debt. Why not have, uh, you know, both things have uh, keep the levels of training that they are for EMT, for paramedic, maybe even trim them a bit and then create a third, a fourth level of practitioner that can do the things that we're asking right now, all of our paramedics to do. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, um, I, I. I agree with you to to a certain extent, and and I say that because um, if you're going to issue certain requirements, you're going to have to uh, create a level of patient care to meet that requirement. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the best example I can give you, and not that I'm anti-educational, I'm all for training and learning and things of that nature. But I go back to myself. I went into an operating room with a high school education and intubated a patient that was unconscious and not breathing in an operating room surrounded by OR technicians, uh, RNs, anesthesiologists, anesthetists, and perform that procedure successfully. So that particular procedure itself was exclusively designed for residents or anesthesiologists or anesthetists or anybody except the guy with the high school education. So <laughs> if it doesn't necessarily mean because I don't have the degree that I can't perform those types of, of procedures. And I, I, I go by a particular rule. If you can teach it to me, I can learn it. And so, because someone had to teach it to you. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if, if, if it doesn't matter what it is, if you can teach it to me, then I can learn it because you learned it. So you know, you, you may have, you know, like you said, you're in grad school now, so you're a lot smarter, <laughs> smarter than I am. Not at all. You know? not at, all. <laughs> at, at, at this age. Okay. Yeah. But uh, so I, I I think it's okay to, to put requirements on particular job classifications, but if it's already been proven that you don't need a bachelor's degree to perform it, why requirement? Yeah, no, no, I, I certainly get where you come from. You alluded to this experience you had, can, and I, I don't want to just rehash stuff that was talked about in the book, but I want to hear in your words, 
how that felt that first time. Uh, Cause I'll tell you what, I got chills reading it when I was reading it in the book. So can you describe that, that, you know, the first time you where Dr. Saffer brought you into the OR uh, and uh, well, cause it was also like a, an amphitheater, right. Or a theater. Yes. So yeah. Can yes. you describe that mm-hmm. experience? Well, it, it, it was a unique experience in itself just to let you know, I didn't know that that was what I was going to do. Obviously we had played around with mannequins and, and stuff like that. And, dogs and stuff so <laughs> but at the time i was just told to meet dr saffron on the 10th floor of Presbyterian university and and they you know i dressed in or gear i had the hat and the booties and the mask and the whole garb and and i entered the operating room and the minute i entered that room Everything stopped. I'm standing in the doorway. Everything stopped. The the OR technicians stopped doing what they were doing. The uh, anesthetist looked up. Uh, The surgeon who was standing there all gloved up, ready to perform whatever surgical procedure he was going to do. Total silence. And the reason it was like that is they were not used to seeing someone that looked like me come into an operating room without a mop or a bucket. But I didn't have that. I came in with the chief anesthesiologist of the entire department. So all eyes were on this person who they didn't know at the time, didn't know he had a high school education, didn't know why he was there, including he himself. Uh, and walked over to the head of the patient, removed the anesthesiologist that was sitting there and sat there and intubated the patient. All these people that were peering down on the top, I didn't see them. I knew they were there, but I didn't see them. And believe it or not, the one thing I take away from that is that failure was not an option. Because had I failed that procedure, there's a very good chance, and you know, things change, that paramedics would not be performing that today because we were writing the training manual on what paramedics are capable of doing. So by doing that procedure and doing it successfully and going around from room to room in an operating room doing that, I was able to convince the chief anesthesiologist and Dr. Nancy Caroline, uh, that a layperson can perform that procedure. So it's common practice today. But everything that was in the very first paramedic manual, emergency care in the street, in order for it to be placed in there, we had to do it. And we had to do it successfully. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been there. And that became national standards for paramedics across the country. So um it, it's it it's it's something that that you know i you know i don't look at it all the time but people always bring it up once they read the book and so i i you know don't mind rehashing it out but it was something that had never been done before um and you know whether paramedics know it or not uh 
one person that nobody expected to amount to anything was able to perform that procedure to allow you to do it today. Just to, excuse me, just to be clear, uh, you were the first paramedic to intubate somebody, right? Like that, this was it. Yeah. Right. Like that. It's just, it's, it's, I, I remember reading the book and thinking back to the first time I intubated somebody and thinking, wow, you know, some guy did this at freedom house and, now I can do it. That's pretty cool. And now I'm talking to that some guy, you know, like that's pretty cool. So thank you. Um, but that does bring up a follow-up question that I had for you. Um, how do you feel about the fact that it's now sometimes floated as intubation being on the chopping block as a skill that paramedics can do? Obviously, I, I disagree with it. Um, and probably usually one of the reasons to bring something about like that is is the the oftentimes unsuccessful attempts at it, or perhaps uh, damage that's being done uh, with a particular procedure. Uh, but I, I do believe that it's a, a a very necessary procedure that has to be done unless you can come up with an alternative to that to get the same results. Um, you guys are, are far more uh, up-to-date on, on different things than, than I am right now. I, I tried a, uh, I was at a conference in Tampa, Florida, and I tried a video intubation. Uh, and, and I guess it's common sense. You look at a camera and then you put a tube down. But in my mind, I couldn't program it to look at this camera. Despite the fact that the camera was right there in my face, I'm still looking around mm. the camera, looking for the cords to, to, to put the tube in. So if you're able to come up with all these ingenious ideas on how to do things, why take it away? Yeah. 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 I, I you know, <laughs> you got stretchers that lift themselves now and... <laughs> <laughs> so that brings up that brings up, I think, a very fascinating question. Uh, over your time in EMS, what do you think the most interesting or significant development in patient care has been? I would say a, a couple of things. Uh, obviously, if you're looking from the physical standpoint, obviously the invention of the stretcher that's uh, that lifts itself, I, I, I find that an ingenious idea, uh, and. In addition to that, um, it's why I just kept, even though I couldn't perform that procedure, uh, trachea intubation is, is, is obviously an excellent uh, point. And, and, and I think you have to look at what brought about that invention is unfortunately multiple, multiple attempts that were unsuccessful at intubating something. So we have to find an easier way to do that. Uh, no different than lifting the stretcher created multiple workers' comp cases and things like that. So we have to come up with an ingenious way uh, to offset those types of things. So um, I think those are the two things uh, from an actual practitioner standpoint, I think that, that makes a, a, a big difference. Obviously, you know, uh, I carried around uh, heart monitors that weighed 45, 50 pounds. And now I guess they weigh anywhere from two to five pounds uh, now. Uh, so the the invention of different pieces of equipment that has made the job 
somewhat easier, I think it's fantastic. I really do. Can you tell us, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a pivot, but we've been talking about endotracheal intubation. And I remember reading the the part, and we talked about this on the phone, like I said, about the first time you intubated someone in the field. And that, of all the sections of the book that gave me chills, that last piece of that chapter, when you're there, you walked into a hospital with an intubated patient. Can you tell tell our listeners and you can can you tell us about how that went and how how you felt walking into that hospital being the first paramedic to ever intubate somebody in the field? Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, if 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 you go back until the actual time that it happened, uh, that was unexpected at the time because, as I said, we were still in the process of writing the uh, emergency care in the street manual. So when Doctor Nancy Caroline I requested that I do a tracheal intubation. I thought she had lost her mind. Um, <laughs> so seriously, I, I, and, and unbeknownst to me, she had enough confidence in, in my ability to do it. So once I did it and we transported the patient uh, to the emergency room, little did I know that that was going to be the beginning of the different challenges that we were going to face because the ER staff was not used to a paramedic coming in with an intubated patient that they had intubated. So the physician at the time challenged me on uh, who ordered this patient to be intubated. And I said, our medical director, well, who did it? I said, I, I did it. And he wanted to know, well, who are you? I said, well, I'm John <laughs> Moon and I work for Freedom House ambulance service. But one of the things that you have to take from that is it was a learning experience for him because the ERs were not used to EMS bringing in patients that were intubated, that uh, I came in uh, giving you a EKG report, uh, lung sounds, vital signs, and things like that. So believe it or not, since they were not used to it, we were mocked and laughed at because it was something that they were not accustomed to. And I, I can go back to the time I, I transported a patient to an emergency room and gave a, 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 a rundown on a, a patient that we'd had that suffered a sinkable episode, and the nurse laughed at me. And it was very disheartening. And, and so I, I, I kind of vented. To, to Dr. Nancy Caroline, like, well, why are we even doing this? Nobody's going to listen to us. And she said, well, if you don't learn to speak the language of the emergency room, then no one will ever listen to you. So she said, go back in there and find a physician, which I did, and it was received a whole lot better. But what people don't realize is that we were still teaching the emergency rooms what was going to happen years down the road because they were not accustomed to that happening. And, you know, it wasn't our intent to do that, but that was all part of this predestined plan that we, we see today. You wouldn't dare come into an emergency room and don't have a, a, a complete workup on you. What did you do? What's the vital signs? What's the EKG reading? What's the oxygen, the SATSATs and stuff like that. So um, we, 
we were so far ahead of our time that it just boggles my mind. But we were teaching the ERs what was going to happen later on because they were not accustomed to that. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring up that uh, experience and um, that part that part of the book. I find that we still run into that today. That there's still ER doctors and nurses that don't quite understand what we do in the field. They don't understand the scope of our practice, our protocols, what they allow for. I uh, I think within the past three or four months, I had a doctor say, "I didn't know you guys could do all these things." And I think I I think that patient had received an epi drip had been paced or, or a, a litany of things had been done in the field prior to arrival at the hospital. And he sat there and shock was like, I didn't know you guys could do all this stuff. And this is 2023, not 1970s. <laughs> and it's, I think it's always this thing that we're constantly teaching our partners in medicine that, you know, what we do in the field, how, you know, we are the, um, that first step in a lot of people's uh, process with medicine and how we are getting the first look at everything and the first um, view, or look view of what's going on and then acting on it. And what we do has a very large effect on what goes on through the hospital, through their care timeline or their care path. And it's just, it's interesting that you say, you know, in, seven, in the 1970s, you're experiencing this and me, Moose, Ken in 2023, having similar experiences where we're, still having to educate the, the hospital on what we do. And, and that's interesting that you said that because I look at today, you have ER physicians, that's a specialty. So with that being the specialty now, um, then you, you would hope or think that they had some exposure to uh, the EMS environment. Uh, I can only talk about what, what goes on here in Pittsburgh, but our uh, EMS system, uh, the uh, residents themselves are required to spend time on an EMS unit. In addition to that, they are, they're, they're given a vehicle in which they are required to respond to certain life-threatening calls 24-7. So that exposure allows them to actually get a firsthand feel of what goes on out in the field before that patient gets to the emergency room. Now, the, the physician that you're talking about, I, I, you know, I can't say whether he had that exposure or not, uh, but I, I, I think exposing the ER physicians, particularly, obviously, now, if you're in a rural area and things, there's a good chance you're not going to have that. But in the inner city, in an urban environment, where there's specialty hospitals and specialized emergency rooms, your 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 ER physician um, is is just as much a specialty as an anesthesiologist or a pulmonologist or whatever, because it's a specialty. And I know here in Pittsburgh, it's all part of that that bigger picture that uh, they they come to learn how to uh, be an ER physician. So that exposure plays a very big role in that. So it's an, it, it's an effort to prevent the questions that you're telling me about that the physician said, I didn't know you guys could do that. Uh, maybe that, that could be a, a lack of exposure. 
Oh, yeah, def- definitely. And we uh, we had a uh, former Pittsburgh uh, experienced doctor on the show, uh, Dr. Nussbaum, who is a medical director in the local area here now, who did his fellowship in, P- in Pennsylvania and Pen- uh, Pittsburgh specifically, and talked about that exact experience where he was out in the field running these calls, getting that experience, not that he didn't already have it from being a prior EMT, but also, you know, seeing what the paramedics can do and being interacting with them. And then also Pennsylvania's med command whole system, how Pennsylvania is a little bit more unique than Maryland is when it comes to how they handle that and the doctors that it produces and the experiences for those doctors and how it drives them forward in their practice as well. Good. Okay. Um, so uh, I was going to shift gears slightly. Do you have something more on topic? Well, no, I just I just think you make a great point. I mean, because it's all about uh, showing what we do. And uh, like here in Maryland, uh, we have two major emergency medicine residency programs, right? University of Maryland and the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And I, I don't know, I'm sure I, I want to say one of at least University of Maryland has an option for residents to ride along with EMS only because I've ran calls. They do. Yeah. Where I volunteer with where like a physician shows up with a supervisor. But- do they have a fellowship? Uh, so Hopkins does. University okay. does. Okay. Yeah, an EMS fellowship. And that's what I was going to get at. This, these EMS fellowships are really getting to what we need, where um, to be a medical director of a uh, of an EMS system, having someone that's EMS fellowship trained, I think it's, it's very useful. We've had, uh, you know, Ben Lawner on uh, to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, no, it, 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 it really is a again, a testament to how far, I mean, your words, not mine, how far uh, ahead of the times you all were with having a closely, uh, uh, a dedicated medical director who was so closely involved. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's remarkable. Ken, go ahead. Okay. So I, I was just curious, Mr. Moon, um, you've gone through the ranks in your department from paramedic all the way up through assistant chief. And I was very curious how your leadership style had changed and adapted with, with each rung along the ladder up, because I'm sure a lot of it stayed the same. You seem like a very natural kind of leader to me. Uh, but I'm sure that, you know, as you went from being a paramedic and being an informal leader up through, you know, however your rank structure is, I'm sure you had to adapt somehow. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it presented a unique set of challenges uh, at each step. Uh, primarily because you have to kind of reprogram your brain to uh, go from being, say, for example, a crew chief to being in charge of a three-person crew or two-person crew to a supervisor being in charge of 10 or 12 people on a shift, depending on how many units uh, you, you have, and monitoring those type of individuals. Uh, the adjustment I had to make is going from being actively involved in patient care to more or less a hands-off approach because I had to monitor an entire system as opposed to just two or three people. Uh, And then once you move to the next level, um, one of my duties, I was in charge of uh, 10 supervisors as I was the chief supervisor. Uh, and I had also in charge of 162 paramedics that I had to somehow keep track of. Uh, 
<laughs> Two. So uh, in addition to, what do I say, hiring, in addition to uh, major events like uh, football games and basketball games and baseball games and parades and marathons and things, part of my duties was to assign uh, people to those. Uh, so um, I, I, I look at all of that and uh, I often look back and say, you can go up as high as you can go, but we have to keep in mind that the title doesn't make the person. The person makes the title. So um, just to give you an example, maybe it was intentional, I don't know. Once I retired, my position as the assistant chief of Pittsburgh EMS remained vacant for seven years. Wow. That's, that's, impre that's, 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 that's an impressive it. amount of time to be vacant. He didn't find to take the, the position. Yeah. So uh, it, it's, you know, I, I mean, to be fair, me. there's probably pretty big shoes to fill, too. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, I, mean, I, I feel bad for the next guy I mean, or gal, you know, I mean, well, the next the next person was a female. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. So, uh, yeah, that wasn't my intent. It's just that as duties started being thrown upon me, I had to redesign this human being. Uh, to do the job of three or four other people. Uh, and once I retired, before they filled a slot, they took all of my duties and assigned them to five different people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Um, as I moved up to the ranks, basically, um, the, the, my focus changed. But one thing I never stopped and lost my focus was to interact with the people in the field. I always found time to do that. And and I, I still enjoyed showing up on calls as a critique person, but as an asset. Um, I would carry, help the person down the steps with the stair chair or on the stretcher, or I would carry equipment down from the patient's home and put it in the truck. I would obviously put it in the wrong place, but uh, <laughs> still, it, it was just, you know, to let you know that I kind of understand what the role is of being there. And because I've, I've served in that capacity. So um, I wanted to remove that stigma that anytime a supervisor shows up, is because he's there to reprimand someone or, or because something went wrong or to critique what you're doing and stuff like that. So I kind of removed that stigma um, away from it. And, and you know, even as assistant chief, as time allotted, I, I, I would go out into the street and, and, and go on calls and stop in the emergency room uh, and visit with the paramedics. And like I mentioned earlier, every time I showed up, they thought something was wrong. So I had to kind of <laughs> dispel that room. But uh, yeah, uh, it, it was a, it was a, each step you have to adjust uh, to the requirements of that title. A question about your progress up through the ranks. So you talked about in the beginning how when you switched from, when you did get hired by uh, Pittsburgh EMS and you came in and you had all this experience and knowledge, but you were a third that could do nothing. 
how was it moving up the ranks with that being kind of your starter and how uh, your peers and how the department looked at you at the time moving up through the ranks? How did that go? Well, um, I, what I, I used as, as, as a guide, because as I, I talk about me being the third person on a two-person crew, Karma would have it. We went on a call, and the crew that I was working with didn't know what to do. It was an unconscious patient, not breathing, didn't have a heartbeat, and they panicked. They had never experienced an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So they didn't know what to do. So they turned to the person that wasn't allowed to do anything and say, you take over. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I, I started assigning duties and, and responsibilities and, 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 you know, you start the IV, I'll intubate the patient, you put the monitor on and we subsequently save the person's life. And that's great. But it had to be kept quiet. Because I wasn't mm. allowed to do anything. Mm. Yeah. So from that point on, I made myself a promise, a couple of them, that John Moon had to be more assertive. He had to be more outspoken. He had to be more aggressive when it came to treating patients. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted them to know exactly who I was and what I was able to do. And 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 once I, I got that hurdle accomplished, then I had to look at the makeup of Pittsburgh EMS, which was very dismal in the effort of diversity. So I, in turn, made myself another promise that if I ever got into a position to change the face of the department, I would devote the remaining part of my career to doing that. So once I got into a level where I could be a little bit more outspoken about the department and the challenges that we were facing and things like that, uh, I was able to get that point across and not without resistance. Okay, not, no, no, that, that, that was a lot of resistance, particularly when you're talking about diversifying a department and we we're talking about a few years ago, uh, that was a lot of resistance, but I used that as a motivator. So the more resistance I ran up against, the more determined I became to accomplish the goal that I wanted to to accomplish. But what I didn't understand and didn't see and didn't recognize at that time is that I was sabotaging my own career as I was focusing on different deficiencies within the department and things that uh, we should be doing and wasn't doing. So uh, when it was time for John Moon to move up the ladder to the next highest position, I was passed over for the promotion. My head had hit that glass ceiling and and I I didn't know it. Uh, The department changed its promotional process, one that we had used for 30 years. That the next man up, the next man up, because you had the experience along those lines. And I subsequently uh, had to uh, report to a guy that I'd been his boss for 15 years. And, you know, <laughs> that didn't sit too well with me, but I still had to do it. <laughs> you know? Understandable. Yeah. Understandable, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
How did you break through that? Because, I mean, eventually you came the, became the chief. No, no. <sighs> I, 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 well, not I, the, well I, I mean the chief of EMS, but yeah, like, how did you break through that? Well, I didn't break through it. I could. Yeah. I, I, hmm. I, I, I really couldn't break through it at all because once I started complaining about being passed over for the assistant chief position. Uh, okay, okay. Now I understand. Um, yeah. You, you don't file complaints with your employer and expect to have a happy life. Fair enough. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, and I understood it at the time, but, you know, I would say the last five years of my career with Pittsburgh EMS uh, was a living hell. And it was designed to be that way because I was the outspoken person. I was outspoken on diversity. Uh, I was outspoken on the hiring uh, complex. I was outspoken about the promotional process and things like that. So um, the way to silence the troublemaker is to get rid of them. So <laughs> you, 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 you devise certain ways to make the job more difficult to the point where I, I had to make a decision. Do I stay and show you how tough I am? Or do I just cut my losses and retire and go somewhere and sit down and, and, and spend the remaining of my days talking to guys like you are? I can't help but see some similarities to the difficulties you all were put through when you were first brought on to mm-hmm. Pittsburgh EMS. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't help but see the similarities. Can you talk about th- those first few times and how they purposefully made it so you all had to go through different, more difficult, more you know, regular testing and just honestly sounds like hazing uh, to try to weed you all out? Can you describe that experience? Yes, you're absolutely correct. It was a weeding out process. Um, and, it, it, and it was very systematic, methodically done. Uh, I could put all you all in a classroom and continually give you a test this day and a test this day. And if you don't pass it, you're, 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 you're gone. Uh, I change your shift at a moment's notice. I, you know, somehow, uh, make it difficult. I'll put you on the crew where you're not necessarily wanted on. Uh, also, um, the department instituted certain stereotype mindsets of different neighborhoods. Um, Let's take the public housing complexes as an example. Um, People that live in those areas, uh, they don't have heart attacks and strokes and diabetics and any other medical problems. All you're going to get there is uh, drug overdoses and shootings and domestic violence and things like that. If you want to deal with medical calls, get on a unit to handle some of your more affluent neighborhoods. So I stereotype different neighborhoods. And, and so I program the people to think in that same format. So what you have to look at is a complete department that was predominantly white, that came in from the suburbs into an urban environment. I had a preconceived idea on what it would be like coming into an urban environment, that it was the most dangerous place in the world to be. Um, uh, and, and so I have to prepare myself. So I, I'll, perhaps I'll bring a gun to work with me. I'll carry a knife in my boots. Uh, 
the the units themselves have what they call seven cell flashlights uh that you know was probably that long not to find your way around in the dark with but to use as a weapon or a defensive weapon because you never knew what you were going to get in this inner city type of neighborhood um you will call me for uh chest pains at say two or three o'clock in the morning i would come to your house and i would take this flashlight and bang on the door and step off to the side because you never knew what was what projectile would be coming through that particular door depending on the environment i was in or the neighborhood i was in so you have a a system that that because of the individual's stereotypical mindset and and so I had to find ways to change that. So uh, you voice your concerns about the flashlights. I voice. We had handcuffs on the vehicles. Um, it was. It would be nothing for a Pittsburgh EMS van put its red lights and sirens on and pull you over for going through a stop sign. That blows my mind. That blows my mind. Because that we're dressed just yeah. like the police. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like we're sitting here talking, I'm not necessarily disparaging the department because I love the department. I'm talking about a set of things that occurred in a specific time frame. Yeah, you're, and, you're, and, you're giving us the historical perspective. Yes, yeah, yeah historical yeah. perspective of it. And, and, and how the department has evolved into something entirely different than it was back then. So, um, you know, you, you had me looking just like a police officer. So I had that authoritarian type of mentality. Uh, so I could go in your house and, and you're, you're trying to explain to me what's going on with your loved one. And I'll tell you to sit up and shut up and go over there and sit down. I want to talk to this person. Wow. So, yeah. you know, all of that was programmed into the individuals that came from a suburban environment into an urban environment. So if you program to them to think that way, um, then you don't have a very good uh, opinion of people that look like me. It, it blows my mind because some of the sickest folks are the ones that don't have access to health care that are minorities. So which like, created, the, yeah, which created Freedom House. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, just absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, that, that that part just blows my mind. Yeah, I, I Freedom House uh, took everybody. We even you got a doctor's appointment and you don't have a way to get there. You call, I'll come and get you. You go to your doctor's appointment when it's over. Call, and I'll come back and get you and take you back home. Yeah. Now, uh, transport systems like that are a multi-billion-dollar business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we, you know, we're the first to to initiate something like that. I, I want to uh, shift gears here. So, is there anything else you guys want to say about this? I, I want to ask. So, the first day of paramedic school, or a couple of weeks before, I bought this massive textbook, and it said "Nancy Caroline Emergency Care in the Streets" version, whatever. And uh, I proceeded to not remove the plastic from it. That's not true. I did remove the plastic, and I think I might have opened it once. Um, and throughout the course, uh, I had a guy, a guy by the name of Ken Sander who's sitting in the room and I annoyed the hell out of him because I was so critical of this book and 
I um, have been very critical of the Nancy Caroline textbook on this podcast. Now, imagine how terrible I felt when I read the book and I found out that this Nancy Caroline person was really a solid person. And uh, so I wanted to ask you two questions. Um, the first one, can, if well, can you tell us about Dr. Nancy Caroline as a person? Um, and then also, can you tell us about the first edition of the Nancy Caroline Care, Emergency Care in the Streets and the process that, because I know you all were, you know, you were involved in writing that first book. And yeah. then wh- what happened? What happened to where, how did it get to the point where now, well, yeah, I won't, I won't be too critical, but I mean, it's certainly not what I imagine what it used to be. And uh, yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, uh, first of all, um, Nancy Caroline, uh, once she came to Freedom House, um, we had been the stepping stones for other physicians to come through and kind of pad their resumes and move on to bigger and better things. So um, that was a level of mistrust because uh, you're just, you know, another white woman is coming here to uh, pad their resume and then you'll be gone shortly and, you know, we'll wait for the next person. So when she first got there, that was a level of mistrust. And, and one of the things she had to do is she had to earn our trust. And in addition to that, we had to prove to her that we were as good as we were because she, you know, she had her own ideas. She really didn't know what a paramedic was and never heard of one, obviously never heard of Freedom House. So you had to have a marriage so to speak. So there had to be honesty. There had to be trust. So she was able to earn our trust. And in doing that, um, we were able to, uh, she was able to gain confidence in, in our abilities to perform a service. Now, that in turn created a marriage that was a very strong bond, that it was very difficult to break through. And the best example I can give you this picture, uh, say a five foot, five foot two Jewish woman walking down the halls of a hospital with four black guys dressed in dressed in white uniforms with afros and beards, walking right into an ICU, not stopping at the desk, not saying we're here, but going directly to the patient's bedside and doing an examination on a person in an intensive care unit. What's the chief complaint? What's the side effects of the medication? What's the IV rate? What are the lung sounds? What's the EKG? What is the outcome of this patient? So she in turn wasn't afraid to be seen with us. And she would take us anywhere in the hospital. On the flip side of that, we would take her anywhere into the Hill District, which was a predominantly black neighborhood. We would take her to restaurants uh, where they were serving soul food. Um, And and we would take her on calls to um, drug overdoses uh, in some of the most deplorable conditions that you can imagine. Homes without utilities and basements that are uh, in homes that are abandoned and things. She was right there with us. So if you 
take this marriage and you got this bond and then you start writing this book and and you do all of these things are in the book and as the book is continually at, shortly after she died uh she died in 2000 the book I, I guess the family sold the rights to whomever has it now so you're talking about this great big manual that's this thick and it weighs probably about oh, 10 pounds because I have a copy of it. Uh, if you read through the manual, it talks about the history of EMS. And it talks about Miami and Jacksonville and Los Angeles and Seattle. Um, and it talks about how great those services are and, and how they started and what accomplishments they had. And then off to the right, there's a little segment that says Freedom House. Dr. Nancy Caroline was a medical director of a group of black men that didn't have an opportunity to get a high school education. Period. And I don't know how whether you got that far into the book or not, but please, <laughs> please look at it. And it's right in the history of mm -hmm. EMS. And, and, and that's the saddened part to me about that manual, despite the fact that we wrote the very first the book. It's, and it's got it's got her damn name on it. Like yes. what what are, what are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. And so as the book is constantly being printed, Freedom House is rapidly being phased out of having anything to do with that book. Because if you look over here and see a group of black men that didn't have an opportunity to get to a high school education, we didn't contribute anything to this book. Absolutely nothing. When in fact you contributed everything, everything, right? So, so, go ahead. I'm sorry, sir. I was I was just going to ask, what can we do to keep the memory of Freedom House alive? This. <laughs> well, this this is one of the the things that whether you believe it or not plays a a very very critical role of of uh, the history of EMS. Um, I don't know, you know, too much about, you know, your systems, but American Sirens, I would like for that book to be required reading for every EMS person. I would like for the history of EMS talked in every paramedic and or EMT training program. I would like for the history of EMS to be taught in every EMS physician's training program. Um, so that in itself plays a very critical role in keeping this part of, 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 of history alive. Uh, we are right now, uh, we have a display in uh, the Heinz History Museum, which is part of the Smithsonian. Um, there are, I've done so many podcasts that I've lost track of them. Uh, <laughs> There's a documentary out that hopefully later on tonight, I'll find out whether it won an Emmy or not. Uh, it's called First wow. Responders. It's about That's the history cool. of uh, Freedom House. Um, but the the documentary itself has been uh, picked up by uh, public television broadcasting stations or something uh, to broadcast across the, the country. Uh, so I'm waiting on that to come to fruition. But um, 
with the exception of me going from EMS conference to EMS conference to speaking and stuff, uh, that's all part of, of, of my plan. And, and you guys play a very critical role in it by giving me this opportunity um, to talk about the history of Freedom House. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I look at things different today. Um, and and may I, I may have mentioned this to you, um, the, you look at the opioid, opioid overdoses that we have in this country uh, and the drug of choice to treat that is Narcan. And it's this wonder drug and you can get it from the drugstore and it's in schools and first responders have it and firefighters carry it and police and everybody has Narcan, even the addicts themselves. But what people don't realize is Freedom House gave Narcan back in 1973. We were the very and then first it disappeared. Service. And then yeah. it disappeared in EMS for a very long time. Absolutely. <laughs> Mm -hmm. We took it out of the operating room and the emergency room out into the field to treat heroin overdoses. There was no fentanyl back then, but we used it to treat heroin overdoses. And, and we did it in a very systematic way because we didn't want the patient to wake up. We didn't want you to go through withdrawals or to be combative or angry that I ruined your $25 high. So I kind of titrated the amount I gave you. And I used your respiratory rate as a guide. And if, if the respiratory rate slowed down, I'd give you more. And if you stopped breathing, I mean, I had control of you as long as you were in the back of that truck and you were unconscious. It's when you woke up that my problems <laughs> began. So they, they very, very, very seldom woke up in the back of our vehicles. And that was the intended purpose of it. It's crazy that you're saying in 1973 you're doing this. And I think was within the past five years that our protocols actually had it in writing that says titrate to respiratory response. And, you know, we're <laughs> shooting for not waking up our patients completely. Absolutely. We're just getting that respiratory drive up above eight and that they can sustain their own uh, airway and everything. Before that, you know, as an EMT, I've been doing this for 16 years. I remember just, okay, slam it up. Oh, they're going to wake up. They're going to be fighting. They're going to be, <laughs> You know, coming out of that hypoxic state and, you know, not know what's going on. But in 1973, mm -hmm. it was being done in the streets of Pittsburgh by Freedom House. And um, we lost it. We've luckily gained it back. It took 50 years. But yeah, I brought it back. And, yeah, you know, uh, I, I agree, sir. You know, getting your this, this knowledge out there about the history of it and where we came from and what started on how advanced it was in the beginning where, Many times, you know, I remember hearing the history of EMS in my initial EMT course and then again in paramedic and uh, how we climbed from the Stone Ages in the, you know, the late 70s and early 80s and where we are today. It's like, well, we were there before. We just didn't want to listen and carry it on properly like we should have. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think, like you said, this is a great avenue for us to get it out there and people hear it i know i the other day in uh teaching i made sure to tell, tell students like hey look when you have time i understand you're you're endeavoring in paramedic school right now you just started and you've got a lot of information to learn in this class when you have the time read american sirens listen to american sirens whichever format mm -hmm. you choose to do that um, and understand where we came from and what people before us have had to battle through to get to where we are today yeah I it has to be a requirement. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, uh, there's so many thoughts going through my head right now of just what if Kevin Hazard didn't write that book? Yeah. Right. I mean, of course, you know, you were there and, you know, you were doing your, but what a great uh, contribution to EMS Yeah. that, you know, you and, uh, you know, Kevin Hazard and all the folks that went into writing that book, what a gift they've given to us, uh, you know, us folks that are on the ground doing the work. Well, I'm not really on the ground doing the work anymore. These guys are on the ground doing the work. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, and I just can't, you know, I can't stress enough how much we appreciate you coming on the show and giving us the opportunity to ask you these questions because there's so much for each of us uh, to learn, you know. Is there anything, um, I want to make sure that we cover anything that, uh, you wanted to cover that we haven't asked you about yet, or we just haven't talked about yet because uh, we don't know what we want to know. And we want to learn from you about, you know, not only freedom house, but just, you know, leadership in general. Well, um, I think we've covered a, a lot of uh, information. And my main concern is from a historical standpoint. And as I think back, uh, to my days at Freedom House and, and um, how the individuals themselves were able to uh, overcome different obstacles and barriers and distractions and things like that. Then the word victory comes to mind. And then I get to thinking that um, there's a cost for victory and Freedom House paid the ultimate cost. Uh, its demise, its lost in history, uh, but it's still a victory. So I, I, I like to think that uh, the foundation of every EMS system across this country rests on the shoulders of um, a group of members that nobody thought would amount to anything. And And one of the things that lets me know that that victory has happened, is that Pittsburgh EMS for 48 years and five months has just gotten its first African-American chief. Uh, the department was so accustomed to doing what was normal that it failed and didn't even consider to do what was right. So we have the very first African-American female, this chief of Pittsburgh EMS. Um, she's someone that I hired uh, 25 years ago. So um, I'm not there any longer, but all of the effort and the setbacks and the broken promises that we went through at Freedom House, as I look back and I see her, then I think that it was all worth it. And that's the point I want um, to get out there, that um, every EMS department in this country rests on the shoulders of, of Freedom House Ambulance Service. Thank you. I don't think that there's a better point to end on. Yep, yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a great way to sum it all up and a great final message. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mr. Moon, it was a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I now really appreciate it. Of course. Don't go anywhere. We're going to, uh, Josh is going to finish us out and then we're going to stop. We're going to hit stop recording. And then we'll, I'm sure there's some things we want to, you know, okay. chat with you just to close up. Okay. No uh, but yeah, thank you so much, Josh. Close us out. 
Well, thanks everyone to listening to uh, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is. Uh, once again, thanks for listening. Thank you, Mr. Moon, for coming on and talking to us. Uh, if you're not already, like and follow uh, us on social media, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, look for other content coming out here soon. Check out the book, American Sirens. Uh, that's the next part. Okay, yep. yeah. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah. You'll see it on our, <laughs> our social media bunch coming here soon. But uh, find American Sirens at your local bookstore, Audible, Amazon, wherever it is. Read it, listen to it, whatever format you like. Uh, once again, thanks for listening to us. Be safe. Have a good night, good evening, or good morning. Bye. You want to hit record or stop for you?